welcome to Galsplain, the podcast where two best gals explain anything and everything to each other better than any man ever has. <laughs> this week, we're diving into the origins of the universe as told by Greek mythology and the five apology languages. Yeah, you could Google it, but isn't it more fun to learn it from a friend? I'm Claire. And I'm Michelle. Michelle, here we are, week two. Week two of Galsplained. <laughs> so tell me, I already know that you tried a cold shower, which if you haven't heard episode one, everybody listening, you should go back and listen after you listen to this. But Michelle, tell us about your cold shower experience. Yes, I've actually been taking cold showers every day now. And I got to tell you, I feel like I cheated a little bit sometimes because Sometimes when I was taking the cold showers, I made it a little more medium temperature than cold temperature. But I slowly throughout the week have been making it colder and colder. And you're totally right. Last week, you said something about how like, you're like, wait, that's not that cold. Like, I felt warm sometimes taking the showers. Yeah. And it like totally woke me up every time. Every time I was feeling like fatigued or groggy and I jumped in the shower and took a cold shower. I was like, oh, wait, I'm fine. What am I groggy about? (laughs) I'm so glad that you're a convert to the cold shower life. I have recently reintroduced them and I feel a lot more awake in the morning. I feel like we're about to start like a cold shower cult. Like, who are we? We're like, we should be sponsored by cold showers at this point. (laughs) No, my brother, his, uh, his house, actually, they lost hot water this week. And so they've been boiling water on the stove for their showers and their baths. And And did you call and say, honestly, you don't need to do that. Yeah. Listen, lose the hot water life. We need cold water now in 2020. We're going back in time. I know you have a toddler and a baby, (laughs) but start them early. Get them in those ice cold baths. Make them (laughs) suffer and wake up for the day. (laughs) Why do I feel like next year it's going to be like an episode all about how we took our our first polar plunge? (laughs) That sounds terrible. I know. I'm still, we are still both fire signs and very, very here for warmth. So, Oh my gosh. One of these days we're going to go crazy and just do an astrology episode. But that's like, what's worse, liking astrology or starting a podcast? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think they're kind of synonymous. Yikes. Um, well, speaking of podcasts, are you ready to learn about Greek mythology today? <laughs> Yeah, I am. I'm starting a series today, Claire, about beginnings of the universe as described by different belief systems and mythologies. Um, I don't really know many origin of the universe stories that well, except like maybe ones that we learn through religions um, and just so happens Greek mythology because I am a big Greek mythology nerd. Do you know anything? How into Greek mythology are you, Claire? So my sole understanding of Greek mythology has, one, come from the play that I did junior year of high school, uh, where I learned a little bit about Greek mythology, and two, Latin class used to have that thing in the library, that event where they would dress up as different Greek mythology characters, and you would go around and like get food from them, and I don't know. Yeah, it was really cool. It was like you were in the underworld. Oh, yeah. There you go. All all I knew is it got me out of class. Well, good, because then you'll be learning so much today, because actually, I feel like that many people don't know what this story is exactly in Greek mythology. Like, they've heard parts of it. 
Um, for listeners at home, if you're into Greek mythology like me, I'm I would bet like a bunch of money that most of you are into it like me because you were obsessed with Lightning Thief as a kid. I was absolutely obsessed with the Lightning Thief. That's how I at least became initially obsessed with Greek mythology. And since then, it's just been a big passion of mine to like read things about it. So this episode of Origins of the Universe is really indulgent for me. Like if I do another Origins of the Universe episode, it'll probably be about one that I don't know as much about. Can I say I lied? I think I know a lot more about Greek mythology than I than just high school. I remember I went to college. I studied theater, which I'll oh. probably end up mentioning every week. We did the Greeks as plays. I was also in a sorority, and that's all Greek-based, and our Greek <laughs> god was Poseidon. So oh. I've always resonated with Poseidon. Poseidon's really cool. Um, well, or in some stories, he's not. That's kind of the gods, though. But Poseidon's actually not mentioned much in this story. And I learned a lot from researching this that I didn't know. So are you ready to learn about the beginning of the universe as told by Greek mythology, Claire? <laughs> Heck yeah, Michelle. All right. So in the beginning, there was chaos. Chaos is sometimes viewed as a tangible female deity, but mostly she is viewed as the first plane of existence in the universe from which the primordial being sprang out of. She is a murky and chaotic mix of all the elements in the universe. I find chaotic chaos, not chaos, I mean, I find chaotic energy really interesting, but I find chaos like as a being really interesting because chaos didn't really disappear when the universe started. She's been there from the beginning and also she's a woman. So feminism. I think I, I think I knew her in college. I think she was a friend of mine. Chaos is a friend of yours? Well, I think we all have a friend that could probably be chaos. I think sometimes I'm the friend that is chaos. No. <laughs> so after chaos, it is debated that there are three beings that appeared at that time. First was Gaia, which is Earth. Then Tartarus, which is an abyss in the underworld. And finally, Eros, which is love. Eros is up for debate because there are versions of the story that consider Eros to be the child of Aphrodite. Um, you might know Eros a little better as Cupid in Roman mythology. That differs because Eros is also considered to be the reason for why things were created in the first place, because Eros equals love. But the ruling class of the gods descended from Gaia. So we're going to talk about that. So Mother Earth herself was lonely at the start of the universe, and so she gave birth to her companion, Uranus. I am pronouncing it that way because I do not want any laughs at his name. But yes, there is a planet in our solar system named after Uranus. And Uranus <laughs> is the starry sky. Eros is said to have infected them with love and the desire to create. And so they did. Gaia was stuck with Uranus. And I mean, like, actually stuck with him. At the beginning of time, Gaia and Uranus, the starry sky, were literally like on top of each other. There was no in-between between space and Earth. They were stuck together in an infinite embrace. Um, and Uranus didn't want to leave Gaia ever. And they kept procreating and procreating and procreating. And through this long era of procreation between these two, they created things like Cyclops and Giants or Gigantes, uh, Elder Muses, and a ton of other different deities of all kinds and monsters of all kinds. So they were beings? They were. It's 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 hard because they weren't like necessarily humans like us, but they're manifestations of the things that like of the earth and the in sky. 
So space and the Earth were like on top of each other, like physically, but also they had genitals. Yeah. I mean, their desire to procreate, that's very human. Yeah. they're. I mean, well, we were made in the, you know, the vision of the gods, right? Apparently. <laughs> the the most important thing that Gaia and Uranus created together were the Titans. So that was their ch- uh, whole group of children that they made. And Gaia was sick and tired of having Uranus have sex with her. She was like, she didn't want to be in his embrace anymore. And not only that, but Uranus didn't freaking want kids. He Every time he impregnated her, he pushed the kids back into her womb. So they were all inside of her, which basically means all inside of the earth, right? Like under the core. Right. That was her womb. So he kept pushing them back inside of her and trying to impregnate her over and over again. This is awful to try and visualize. So I encourage everyone to not. Okay, continue. (laughs) Visualize it really hard. Um, No, please. (laughs) Um... (laughs) So she made a plan. She made a little sickle, which is uh, like a Sith. Like what uh, the Grim Reaper carries in Sims. Yeah, kind of like the Grim Reaper, I think. Maybe that's wrong. Oops. (laughs) And she gave it to her youngest Titan son, Cronus. And she said, please get this, get your father off of me, essentially. And Cronus was like eager to get out because he was ambitious. So when Uranus next came and put his... Inside of Gaia, Cronus cut his father's off with the sickle. Graphic. Yep. Yep. But yeah, so uh, his was cut off and he went far away. He was, That's how space parted with Earth. And that's why they do not touch anymore. Because he can't. Oh, I always wondered why. <laughs> <laughs> Cronus, now outside of his mother's womb, um, with all his Titan brethren, he's the ruler of the cosmos. And he married his wife, Rhea. And things were supposedly like really good during his rule. Hesiod, which is the name of a famous ancient Greek poet who wrote about a lot of this stuff, he described this age, the age that Cronus ruled as the golden age. Gaia was happy and provided humans with an abundance of food, so humans didn't need to work during this time. I think that's also a thing that's pretty disputed, actually, that there were humans during the Titan rule. There's a lot of sources that also say that humans didn't exist until the gods basically ruled. I might be wrong about that, but I think that's kind of up in the air. But there are like five ages of man, as explained by Hesiod. And apparently it was the best one ever in human existence when the Titans ruled. So wish we still had that. Yeah, I didn't ever put together that like the Titans ruled before the gods. You always hear about the gods, the Greek gods. And that's kind of what I remember from Percy Jackson. It's really interesting to think that there were different generations. That's interesting. So when a god ruled... What did that mean? Just like their impact over Earth was great or like physical law giving rules? I mean, they were deities, right? So like the Titans being the rulers, he had siblings that were also Titans and like they would rule over different things. So Cronus was kind of the Titan. He's said to be the Titan of time. So he kind of controls time. And he has like a brother that controls the ocean. Like I think that's Oceanus. I might be wrong about that. Technically, there could be rules, but like it's more that they like I mean, they control the elements on Earth and they control the elements in the universe. Okay, that clears it up. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> there's, like a, there's a lot of different deities that uh, can rule over different things. Like there's a crap ton of ocean gods and like different sea gods. 
But like, obviously, we only ever hear about Poseidon because technically Poseidon was the ruler of them since the gods were in power at that time. So basically, things were really freaking good when Cronus ruled, even so much so that um, the Titans interacted with the humans like they just were chill, apparently. But Cronus became much like his father and became paranoid of rebellion, didn't want anything to do with his kids because there was a prophecy actually that his kids were going to overthrow him oh a prophecy there's a prophecy in every greek (laughs) story and it's always about some child doing something (laughs) and it always impacts everything that happens yeah and then it it always happens anyways right yeah he was like so paranoid (laughs) of it that it comes true right self-fulfilling prophecy we still do that every day today so like we need to learn from our titan ancestors but he was so paranoid of this rebellion that he threw his mother's other children into Tartarus, which is the abyss that was born at the beginning of time, if you remember. And then he ate all his kids when they were born. So his wife, Rhea, was not very happy that her husband kept eating their children. And she actually asked Gaia, her mom, like, what do I do? I don't want my kids to be eaten anymore. And Gaia had her hide away in Crete with a bunch of nymphs once Rhea gave birth to Zeus she left him there to grow up with the nymphs. Rhea uh, got back to Cronus and Cronus actually knew that she was pregnant and he was like, where's my baby? I want to eat him. And so Rhea like swaddled a stone and gave it to him and was like, this is the baby. And he ate the stone thinking it was the baby. And then was like, cool. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually Zeus made his way back to Cronus as an adult, disguised himself as a cupbearer, and poisoned him with a drink that made him vomit up all of his siblings. When he vomited them all up, they vomited up as grown gods. So this became the start of the Titanomachy. I think I said that wrong. The Titanomachy. The, mm, the Titanomachy. <laughs> Titanomachy. The Titanomachy. The ti- Honestly, that could be like... It's pronounced a multitude of ways, so I'm very sorry. Uh, But basically, the Titanomachy is a big battle between the Titans and the gods for the title of rulers of the universe. There were many allyships and betrayals, but in the end, the gods won and banished Cronus and the rest of the Titans that were on his side to Tartarus or whatever punishment was made for them. Wow. It was like a huge thing. Like a war between gods and titans you know i always thought everything was under the category of gods they are referred to as gods like as a blanket term sometimes like even in the resources i was looking at but yeah they're different the gods we know today are the gods right okay also for my percy jackson fans out there this might sound familiar because the percy jackson series the lightning thief one specifically is like based off the titanomachy because it's basically they're like we're gonna do the titanomachy a second time (laughs) and then with rick riordan's second series that was like right after lightning thief it was about the part i'm about to tell you because zeus is now the ruler of the gods he's all cool he's happy he's like yes i defeated my father I'm ruling beside my siblings. This is great. But it wasn't that easy immediately because Gaia was pissed at him for punishing her sons and daughters, the Titans, because he locked them all away and like, you know, threw them in Tartarus and like she was like mad at them, but she like didn't want him to do that to them. So (laughs) she started another war by sending her other children. If you remember the Gigantes or the Giants after the gods. And uh, what do you think happened? At the end of this battle. What happened at the end of the battle between the giants and the gods? The gods? Mm-hmm. 
I think the gods won. I think you would very much win a game of betting if you bet that. Because, yeah, they won. And this wouldn't be the story of the gods rule if they didn't win every single right. battle. <laughs> Deductive reasoning. <laughs> Yeah, so Gaia was even more freaking pissed after this. So she sent a giant monster made of serpents and like looked like a huge freaking beast disaster hurricane tornado thing after the gods. She created it after a night with Tartarus, the being that is Tartarus. They had a night together and had Typhon or Typhus, he's also Mm. called. Um, this part also kind of varies in mythology. Uh, some sources do say that Typhus was created at the end of the Titanomachy, not the end of the Gigantomachy, but he showed up at some point. These are all these terms flying over my head. <laughs> <laughs> the War of the Titans and the War of the Giants. Okay, cool. It's basically like, think of like the Titanomachy is like World War One, and the Gigantomachy is World War Two. That's basically what it was for the gods. More fun names, though. More creative. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) What do you think happened to Typhus? Do you think he's still around and chilling? No. No way. Yeah, he got a mountain thrown on him. Word. He's he's apparently under Mount Etna. Oh, where's that? Probably in Greece, I would assume. (laughs) Have you ever been to Greece? I have. I've been to Athens and Santorini. However, I was in Athens during Easter, and so I couldn't go to the Acropolis. One of my biggest regrets. Aw. Mm-hmm. I've never been. I'm dying to go. Maybe post-quarantine, that's our first trip. <gasps> and we can talk about the Titanomachy and the Gigantomachy. I think I'm starting mm. to say it correctly, by the way. I think it's working. Yeah. The more I say it, that the more it's right. coming out. <laughs> That sounds right. I mean, I wouldn't be the person to correct you if it was wrong, but it sounds right. I don't think anyone will correct me. I think I'm 100% right. Oh, always, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no sarcasm. <laughs> That's basically it. The gods won. We're all chill. Uh, the universe has been created. And Zeus, who was basically the hero of all of this story because he like led the battles. He saved his siblings. He's able to now marry his sister, Hera, because, you know, the old ancient deities love marrying their sisters. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's now like the undisputed ruler of the world. And his siblings are like able to do their thing. And that's the birth of the universe as told by Greeks. Wow. Well, ancient Greeks. (laughs) Do you believe in this? Um, Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) no i just think it's like a really i think like greek mythology is just a lot of really cool stories and they're just ways that you know apparently our ancient ancient ancestors used to explain the universe in every mythology and i think you know it doesn't have to be real for it to be fun stories i completely agree and i think that these stories that have been passed down for generations generations hundreds thousands of years even if they don't explain anything now They've informed so much of our literature, of our theater, of our pop culture that we consume. So many stories are told with the same sentiments uh, that we learned through Greek mythology. Yeah, totally. Well, that's all I got for you today. So did you hear that, Bo? <laughs> My 
Michelle, I think it's time for recess. <laughs> All right. We'd love to take this little bit of time to shout out some people who've been interacting with our last podcast on social media and in the reviews. We were absolutely overwhelmed by all of our listens and downloads. We had some international listeners from India, from the UK. We had a lot of love in the US. We had one listener in Australia, which is so exciting. Yeah. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So I am so excited to make a few shout outs. Yeah. On our Instagram, we did ask you all, uh, what kind of showers you're into, what kind of conspiracy theories you're into. At Oon and her goon said that she is 100% a hot showers person, and she is also pretty convinced that Avril Lavigne was replaced by a lookalike in the early 2000s, which I totally agree. That is also one of my favorite conspiracy theories that I totally forgot to mention, and um, it creeps me out every day. I love this conspiracy theory, and I also love that our listener, when we responded to her and asked like why she thought this, she came back with some really intense information. She has really thought about this. So if you she want explained to us exactly. <laughs> So if you want to engage with us more, please follow us on Instagram and our community is really growing. We're so excited about it. Um, I would love to give a shout out to one of our reviewers. I was so excited by how many people reviewed us and rated us on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, uh, they're fun to read through, at least for us. (laughs) So this one was entitled Fun and Entertaining, and it said... How fun to listen to Claire and Michelle teach us new things and feel like you're listening to your best friends. I loved learning about where conspiracy theories come from as a conspiracy theory lover and all about cold showers. So fun and entertaining. Aww, thank you so much. I also wanted to say that I thought a few of the reviews were pretty funny about saying like, I can't believe this is their first podcast. They have such great chemistry. And it's like, we've been friends for like eight years nine years we've had a podcast this whole time and we didn't even know it (laughs) i know like i would hope we know how to talk to each other it's been nine years but really it, it has been really amazing getting to you know have such big support for us in like this podcast since like I don't know. I feel like this was always something we were bound to do together. And I was all soppy and soppy, sappy about it. Soppy. (laughs) I was all sappy about this in my like Instagram post. But really, like, I'm just very happy to be doing this creative process with Claire. And thank you so much for uh, listening and supporting us and giving us those ratings and reviews. And uh, also for giving us corrections. Uh, I did get one correction. On our last podcast, I said that a person said this about conspiracy theories. He said the quote, such minds resort to conspiracy theory because it is the ultimate refuge of the powerless. If you cannot change your own life, it must be that some greater force controls the world. And I still think that's a pretty cool quote. I did, though, say that Roger Stone said that quote, and I just totally typed that wrong in my notes. That was actually Roger Cohen. Um, And that's that on that. Michelle, I actually expect you to get everything right 100% of the time, so you're going to have to have a talk with your teammate later. That's me. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so sorry for disappointing you, Clara. Sometimes galsplained is not factually correct. Who would have thought? It's all right. We're just two gals trying to splain stuff. (laughs) 
All right, I think we have to go back to class. Boo. Anything no, else? No, I'm excited. For <laughs> <laughs> boo. I don't mean to say boo. Michelle, I am so excited to talk to you about apology languages, especially because I think you and I have very different ones. Ooh, I am excited. I don't know anything about this. So it'll be really great to hear from both sides of the spectrum. I think Ooh. we have, we definitely have some overlap, but I rem- this made me remember a lot of situations. I don't want to say in which we wronged each other, but not at all, but like where we were counseling each other through some drama where someone had wronged us, a breakup or something going wrong with the cast list in <gasps> high school theater or whatever it is. And it was really interesting to think through those situations and try to peg what you were. So do you remember love languages? I do. So for those of you who don't know, it is the huge phenomenon of five love languages, one that I very much subscribe to. It was created by Dr. Gary Chapman to help people acknowledge how they give and receive love in both romantic relationships and platonic relationships. So thought about doing an episode all about love languages, but I feel like at least in my circles, uh, in our circles, I feel like this is universally understood by a lot of people. I feel like they got really in recently. I mean, if someone wants us to talk about it, and that's like something that people are into, one of us can always learn more about them because I'm still kind of figuring them out, actually. But yeah, I feel like at least it's a basically known thing at this point. Yeah. So when I heard about apology languages, my interest was absolutely peaked. Uh, Dr. Gary Chapman striked again, uh, and this time... <laughs> oh, it's the same guy. Yes, Dr. Gary Chapman. Ah. <laughs> this time with Jennifer Thomas. They created the five apology languages, which I have called the lesser-known sibling of the love languages, but just as important. I think I had never heard about this before you brought it up to me. <laughs> I honestly heard about it for the first time maybe a week ago. <gasps> And it piqued my interest so much. And now that I've learned about it, I feel like this is something that will always serve me. So they aren't directly correlated with love languages. It's not like if you're acts of service, you're going to be this apology language. But they do have some things in common. Also, it's important to note, basically, apology languages are saying there's just as many ways to say I'm sorry as there are to say I love you. And while love languages can build relationships, apology languages can tear them down when misunderstood. So I think that they are absolutely just as important as love languages. And a correct apology to you might be incorrect to me or vice Mm -hmm. versa. How you like to be apologized to might not be how your sister likes to be apologized to or whoever (laughs) you're dating or whatever it is. So the apology languages detail solely how you feel best being apologized to. It's not about how you apologize to other people. It's about how they apologize to you. And you may have one or two primary languages. I definitely had a primary language and then two that were kind of split on the second end. There is a quiz on Gary Chapman's site to help you find yours. I took the quiz, but I do not want to reveal what I am until we run through what they mean, at least a few of them. And I'm excited for you to guess what you are, even though I think I know your combo. Oh, shoot. (laughs) Also, I feel like anyone who's listening 
to this who's ever had a fight with me is like rubbing their hands like, oh, I know it's about to go down. Like they're just ready for me to get red. (laughs) Honestly, taking this quiz, I recommend it. It gives you a situation that happens at the top and then five different responses. It doesn't tell you what each language is, but five different responses and you pick how you would feel best apologized to in that situation. So it is like walking through a dream. Oh, yeah, that's nice. (laughs) It's like you get to, the only time in your life you get to pick what someone else says, right? Yeah. So I'm going to run you through the five love languages real quick, and then we'll dive into each one. Got it. So there's expressing regret, which is saying, I'm sorry. There's accepting responsibility, which is saying, I was wrong. There's making restitution, which is asking or saying what you can do to make this right. There's genuinely repenting, which is saying, I'll try not to do this again. And then there's requesting forgiveness, which is asking, will you please forgive me? I know that the last one is not mine. (laughs) I have to tell you, it's not mine either. I'll get into it. That's the only one I scored a 0% on. So number one, expressing regret. This is saying, I'm sorry. And keep in mind, a perfect apology to you might vary based on the situation or what happened. And it might vary based on your level of relationship. So expressing regret uh, is saying, I'm sorry. And what you're saying in this language is expressing how bad you feel as the apologizer for what happened. So this is Often you're saying, I'm sorry, but you're saying what you're sorry for and how you feel bad about it. So here's an example I pulled directly from the quiz. You were proud of your accomplishment, but your friend acted as if it was trivial. He or she should say, do you have any guesses about what expressing regret would look like in an apology to this situation? Is it kind of like, I'm sorry, I feel like bad about making you feel that way? Is that what it is? Yeah. What it explains here is you needed me to share your excitement and I let you down. I hate that that happened and I didn't respond more appropriately. So it's expressing regret for what happened. You're not talking about what you're going to do to change this. You're not talking about how they feel. You're just talking about how you feel bad about it, if that makes sense. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that's mine either. (laughs) And I, I have to say, I think saying I'm sorry is definitely a part of most good apologies, saying yeah. the words I'm sorry. But this is only, a, in my opinion, a small facet of what an apology should be. I I feel like that's not that bad. And like that I would take as an apology from someone, but it definitely doesn't satisfy me as much. I think the thing that does it for me is that it, when people apologize that way, I'm like, oh, so now this is about how you feel bad instead of like. That's exactly what I wrote down when I was taking the quiz. I was like, wow, this person really is making it all about them again. Yeah. In this situation, you know, your friend wasn't proud of your accomplishment and now they're making it all about them again. But I do feel like I would accept that apology and move on, especially for a situation this small. And Chapman also takes the time during when he explains this apology language to express that you should never end an apology with a but. Yeah. Which I feel like everyone knows, but he takes the time to express this a lot. I also feel like when I do end my apologies with buts, like I do it on purpose. Right. And you're not looking to actually end the fight or end the disagreement. You're looking to be right still. Yeah. Not feeling 100%. You're feeling regretful that the situation happened, 
but you're not feeling regretful for why it happened. Yeah. So a good example of this is if you yelled at someone, you want to say, I'm sorry I lost my temper and yelled at you. I should have been a better listener. Not, I'm sorry I lost my temper and yelled at you, but you provoked me or whatever it is. Yeah. I... I feel like I have apologized in this way before, but like it's not a genuine apology for me. Wow. If someone is listening to this, they are hearing all the truths from me. (laughs) (laughs) So the next one is accepting responsibility, which is saying I was wrong. This is saying you were wrong and actually saying what you were wrong about. Uh, Chapman says for some people, this is what they consider to be a sincere apology. If you just say, I'm sorry, but you don't admit what you did wrong, some people, especially people that fall in this as their primary language, won't consider it a real apology. It doesn't sound as sincere when you don't say what you're apologizing for. This is when you start to hear, but what are you sorry about? I uh, am a little bit this one. None of these are wrong to be. I feel this one because I give this one. And I think that's also kind of a problem that like I've run into and I've run into like vice versa, like people doing this to me where it's like, oh, I admitted I was wrong. So now you admit it too. Like we were both wrong. So why are you not admitting it as Mm -hmm. well? And so like that's a little bit of a trap that I've noticed in myself. I feel that. I also feel like I would not consider myself to be a stubborn person because I admit that I'm wrong really fast, maybe too fast. Same. And I... Well, sometimes someone who's listening might disagree with me. (laughs) You've definitely... I mean, you've definitely grown. I think you used to be pretty... I don't want to say stubborn is not the right word, but you used to hold your ground, I guess. Like, It was always you that I would go to when I needed advice about how to stand my ground, how to not be a pushover (laughs) about something. And I think that's an amazing skill. That's a nice way to put it. Thank you. Of course. (laughs) So we have expressing regret and accepting responsibility. I'm going to read you another prompt and you tell me which of these is expressing regret and which of these is accepting responsibility. Okay? Okay. Your sister made an insensitive remark about you. She should say... One, that was so thoughtless of me. I wish I had been more considerate of your feelings. Mm, That's expressing regret. Or two, I know what I said was wrong and that I hurt your feelings. Ooh, I love that apology. (laughs) Me too. That's the one I picked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's the dream for everyone, though. Like for someone who you're fighting with to be like, I'm wrong. Like, woof. Okay, good. (laughs) But for some people, truly, they might fall in the category of that was so thoughtless of me and I wish I had been more considerate of your feelings. I do feel that a little sometimes where it's it's not even about the issue at hand. It's just like, dude, you hurt me. Like, I'm hurt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely subscribed to wanting people to say that they were wrong when they're wrong and say that they know what they did and they know how I feel. I think the other problem with the expressing regret one for me is that like, I don't want to make you feel bad by telling you that you did something that hurt me or that I disagree with or something like that. I I just want you to acknowledge it and so that we can move on. Right. So we can fix it, which I think is probably a future one, the fixing it. Oh, yeah. So the third one (laughs) is making restitution, which is the what can I do to make this right? 
Mm-hmm. And for some people, this is what they're waiting for in an apology. I think this might be you. Um, and if you don't ever offer a time to make this right, in these people's minds, the apology can be lame. They might have a hard time forgiving you. But if they see that you're sincere enough to ask, you know, I'm so sorry, I did something awful. How can I make this right? That shows that you're willing to do something and they sense your sincerity and they feel like you're going to make it up to them. I feel like this is you because I do feel like this goes along with acts of service. Yeah. Like words don't really matter to me, right? Like I think at the end of the day, like what people do is more important than what they're saying. Well, and what I like about making restitution is it takes time. And I've learned that whenever, as I get older, I used to want to squash things right away, mm-hmm. and press them down and move on with the day. But now I take a little space. I take a little time to think whenever I'm in some kind of argument. I compose myself so I don't say anything stupid or that I regret. And I think about how I can make restitution and how I want the other person to make restitution for what happened and what I want to do moving forward. And I feel like that's, especially if this is a reoccurring argument or theme, I feel like that's the best thing to do is to give yourself time and space. Mm -hmm. I want to say, I think that there's a time and place for all three of these that we've talked about so far. All five of them, obviously, but all three of these expressing regret, accepting responsibility and making restitution. And I didn't totally always affiliate with making restitution, but here's a situation in which I really did. A friend borrows your favorite dress and they return it with a big red wine stain on it. See that reimbursement. Yeah. Right. Restitution. You don't just want them to say, I'm sorry. You want them to say, I'm sorry, this was careless of me and you trusted me with this item. I'm going to make this right. Yeah. I just want them to say, hey, I'm sorry. (laughs) Some people just don't even affiliate with making restitution. So it doesn't even occur to them that they should be doing something to make it up to you. All right. I feel like I already kind of gave it away, but I can tell you of the three listed, one of these was my primary language. Do you know which one it is? Um, I think the wronged one. (laughs) The accepting responsibility one. Yes, that's you. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because I want to see empathy. I want someone to acknowledge that they did something wrong and see it through my eyes. And to me, a lot of times, them seeing it through my eyes can be restitution enough. Yeah. Me knowing that they've felt how I feel and they won't want to make me feel this way again because they're actually feeling how I feel. Um, It absolutely is enough for me a lot of times. But I was 45% accept responsibility, 20% make restitution, and 25% express regret. Let's move into number four, which I scored only 10% on, and it is genuinely repenting. So number four is expressing the desire to change. It's saying to the other person, I don't like what I did. I don't want to do this again. Can we talk? How do you think it's different from the last one? So making restitution is apologizing for what happened by making that situation right. So one of the situations that came up when I was looking into this was a coworker says something about you, uh, makes a joke about you that's insensitive in front of the whole team. Making restitution would be, they would say, can I apologize in front of the whole team? Genuinely repenting would be saying, we clearly are on different pages. 
I don't like that I did this. And can we talk about how I'm not going to do this again? Can we make a game plan for how we communicate with each other so that we don't get on each other's nerves and I do this again? So correct me if I'm wrong, but the restitution one seems more like material in the moment instead of like an overtime plan to like get better. Yeah, restitution is how can I make this situation right? And genuinely repenting is talking about the future. Yeah, that's me. I don't really care about making current situations right because it already happened. And by the time we're apologizing and talking about it, like we're just talking about the past and like I can get past the past, you know? But I think the problem with me is definitely the future. I feel like I sit with genuinely repenting sometimes but only on more casual relationships and situations. I think it's a more personal one. Yeah. Like with a partner, family member, close friend. Yeah. And I never picked it for those situations, which is interesting. Hmm. I found it to be a little cold with some situations. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like I haven't accepted your apology and you're already talking about what you're going to do in the future to change it. Like, I need to accept what you're apologizing for right now and then we can talk about the future. It's kind of how my brain works. (laughs) I think like with my brain, it's like I don't even care about an apology. Like, and if someone apologizes me, I'm I am known to be the type of person who's like, OK, whatever. I think this one is 100 percent me. You were right on the money because yeah. I really do not care if someone's sorry, because that means nothing to me because I don't I'd rather not have it happen again. Like, I just want to get to that point with this. It was really interesting because sometimes it can also sound like I may do this again, but let's talk about a plan in which I don't. And I hated how many times it came up, them saying, I may do this again. I may make mistakes again. We definitely will get in a fight again, but let's talk about how to make it better. That's just not the way I operate, which is so funny to know it's the way that you do. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think like, I totally, (laughs) maybe it's messed up, but I totally think that, you know, like everyone's going to make mistakes eventually. And as long as we can like keep communicating and talking about how to make it better next time or like how to be more open and not hurt the person next time like that that's always what makes me feel better but I do actually it's interesting to talk about it in this way because I didn't I guess like I didn't realize that this isn't how everyone operates (laughs) yeah so let's go back to the you were proud of an accomplishment but a friend acted as if it was trivial and we'll talk through the four that we have so far so Mm -hmm. here's the first one you needed me to share your excitement and I let you down I hate that I didn't respond more appropriately. Expressing regret, right? Mm -mm. I'm very ferociously shaking my head no. (laughs) Number two, I spoiled your celebration by not being happy for you. I could make excuses, but really I have no good excuse for ignoring your achievement. That's okay. And I feel like that's accepting responsibility. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I am more than okay with that apology. Me too. I went between that one and the one I'm going to share next. Is it too late for us to celebrate your accomplishment? I really want to make this up to you. And that's restitution. That's let me make this up to you right now. Like, okay, fine. But you, but you know what? The problem with that is like, we can't just make it okay now because I feel hurt by you. And I do think that's the problem with that one, actually. I'm still hurt, so I can't just be okay right now. I think a combination of a lot of these would work for me that I shared so far. Yeah. I let you down. I spoiled your celebration by not being happy for you. I hate that I ignored your achievement. Is it too late for us to go out and celebrate now? 
so I can make it up to you. And here's here's the one you go with, genuinely repenting. So keep in mind that this is like the cherry on top that pushes the apology over for you. It's not like they're not going to say, I'm so sorry I did this at the beginning. This is just their closing line, right? Right. So I promise I'll notice and celebrate your accomplishments in the future. I've learned a hard lesson. Well, that's like a whip. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I, that's you for sure. <laughs> and I definitely went between the second and third one for this for anybody curious. But here's the last one and I'll read the line for it and then we'll get into it. It's I know I failed you before, but will you please forgive me again? I didn't even understand how that's an apology, honestly. Same. This one is <laughs> requesting forgiveness. Will you forgive me? I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. I value our friendship. I know I've hurt you and hope you will forgive me. This is how much I don't think this one's an apology. If anyone did the first four ones and then followed it up with this, I'd be like, oh, no, no, I'm not forgiving you now. Because yeah. are you only just trying to brush over it? <laughs> like what? Yeah. I feel like this is really interesting knowing that asking for forgiveness is a way that some people feel apologized to because you and I don't feel that way at all. <laughs> No, I feel like asking for an asking for forgiveness can be jumping the gun. It can be jumping forward. I would rather have someone ask to make restitution and ask to make it up to me or tell me what they're going to change in the future or whatever it is. than flat out ask for an apology. It's like you haven't done anything. Why are you asking? Yeah. (laughs) And again, you know, different situations call for different apologies and different people want different apologies. So just because we feel a certain way absolutely does not mean that this is the only way we think people should feel. This quiz proves that there are so many different people. But what I liked about requesting forgiveness was another perspective that I read about it because I didn't like it at all. I was like, how can people feel this way? But for some people, when someone asks them for their forgiveness, it puts the ball back in their court. It puts the power back on you. Instead of the power on the apologizer, it puts the power on on the victim of the circumstance. That's really interesting because in a way it like is accepting defeat for some people, for someone to say like, will you forgive me? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I never, I definitely don't think I would take this apology easily, but knowing that this is a way that people genuinely like apologize is nice because I feel like sometimes an apology is scary for like me to accept because I always worry that they're just trying to end the conversation. And knowing that this is actually a way that people are genuinely trying to apologize, Mm -hmm. I guess it like makes me trust people that do that a little bit better. Yeah. And I hope that as this quiz opens up us and our listeners to how they feel best apologize to, it also opens all of us up to thinking that people are being genuine. And accepting the apologies that they give us, especially if we know them and know that this is the way that they like to be apologized to, they think that they're fully doing the right thing. Yeah, because a lot of this is just really trust, like trusting that someone is meaning what they say. Like, because if someone just said, I'm sorry, that's the most basic apology. Wow. I feel like your lessons are very like life changing in the way that you're teaching me how to live a healthier, less toxic life. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely the types of topics I'm drawn to. So if anyone has anything else around this kind of woo-woo world that they want me to talk about, please feel free. I have to say, Michelle, 
I'm so sorry. The podcast is over. <laughs> um, I'm not forgiving you. You need to repent, girl. <laughs> it's good. We can do another one next week. Oh, so that <laughs> so that is a wrap on episode two of Galsplained. Follow us at Galsplained Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And we're going to have some homework today. For all you people listening, please leave a comment or mention us about what crazy mythology stories you want to hear next. And take the apology languages quiz and let us know if you're a Claire or a Michelle or your own person, <laughs> I guess. Subscribe, rate, review, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.